Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Welcome to the latest edition of March Madness 365. I'm your host, Andy Katz. And on this edition of our podcast, I'll be joined by Missouri's Mark Smith, NCAA Senior Vice President Dan Gavitt. Of course, we have Katz Ranks, where I'm going to rank the conferences at this moment from 1 to 10. Uh, going to be based on kind of top-heavy teams that I think can compete for the national championship, a Final Four, Sweet 16, Elite Eight, you name it. And then we got March Chadness. That's the Chad Acock segment where Chad comes back at me with my predictions. So uh, we'll see how I did last week and how I'm doing going forward. Of course, I hope everyone had a safe, merry, merry Christmas, unlike any that any of us have ever experienced. This week, I hope everyone has a safe New Year and people keep it low-key. We got to keep things low-key going forward uh, for the foreseeable future. Uh, through this winter. And then we can get back outside. Hopefully more people are vaccinated and uh, we can get on the other side. But obviously we've got to keep things low key here over the holidays. Um, all right, a couple things before we get going. I'm going to talk about my top 25 here momentarily. But you'll hear my interview with Dan Gavitt. We are a month into the season. And while we've had postponements, we've had cancellations, uh, I want to reiterate that anyone any coach, any player, any official that doesn't want to participate doesn't have to. So I'm sorry. It drives me crazy when I read quotes from some coaches that say we shouldn't be playing. You don't have to play. You don't have to coach. No one is making you, okay? You can sit out and no one is going to judge you. Carol Lawson and the Duke women's basketball program chose to not play the rest of the season. And that's okay. You can take a pause and sit it out. I'm going to give you the converse, though. Number one, I did the DePaul-Providence game on Sunday, double overtime, great game. If there's one team on the men's side which could say right now, we're done, we're not going through this, it's DePaul. They had a total of 28 days of quarantine slash isolation among their entire roster and coaching staff. One 14 day, two seven days. They were 90 minutes, two hours before tip off in Ames, Iowa. Finally think, oh my God, we're going to finally play on December 6th. They get the call. You know what? Positive test. We're back on the plane. We're going home back in isolation. And I talked to two of their starters, Ray Salnave and Charlie Moore. And both players told me, you know what? We wanted to play. We definitely want to play. Dave Lato, I asked him, the head coach, how close were you to thinking that things were going to be done? And he told me. He thought maybe one or two guys, but they all want to play. And what I witnessed on Sunday night was a team that was so happy to be out there. These players want to play. The players that played on Christmas Day in the Big Ten, 
every single one that I talked to, didn't talk to everyone, of course, but the players that I talked to on the Big Ten teams, they were asked, and here are your options. Go home, deal with possible quarantine or something on the backside, be around campus, and don't play, or play. And they all said, it's a dream to play on Christmas Day. The NBA does it. We'd love to do it. And you know what? It was great. I loved it. Now, I'm a fan slash, you know, stakeholder, if you will, because this is what I do for a living. But I thought it was wonderful. And so did the players that participated. And you know what also was great is it gave an opportunity, at least like at Michigan State, where families could come to the games, at least at Michigan State. So Demetri Trice's parents were there. You could see him. I know that wasn't the case everywhere. So let's continue. Corey Kispert, December 26th, scores 32, nine threes. He's having the time of his life. He's having the year of his life. The entire Gonzaga roster, they're loving it. I talked to Mark Few on Monday, and he goes, my guys want to play. They've gone 12,000 miles, 12,000 miles, Florida, Indiana, Texas, to play elite games because they want to. That's what they signed up for. They want to participate this season. Luca Garza has a chance to maybe average close to 30. I mean, what a absolute phenomenal season. Could be National Player of the Year. I would assume a Kofi Coburn, absolutely phenomenal what they're doing at Illinois as a tandem. Northwestern, ranked number 19 this week. 3-0 in the Big Ten. You, you think they don't want to play? Go down to NJIT. On Monday, buzzer beater to win at Vermont. Players jumping all over the place. Look, it stinks. It's awful when there's quarantine and isolation and the pause. Villanova now in pause. We send our best wishes to Jay Wright. Also, by the way, Tim Brando and his wife, Terry, they're recovering from COVID, sending my good wishes to them. Uh, Tim Brando, of course, a voice of college basketball and college sports for a long time, now working with Fox, used to be at ESPN and been at CBS. So uh, shout out to them as well. But uh, look, (laughs) all of these players want to play that I've talked to. And if you don't, you don't have to. Keep that in mind. No one is making them do it. You can get the year back. There's no pressure to play right now. I want to keep stressing that. Even an official, Roger Ayers, who was doing the game the other day when I was doing the Providence-DePaul game. He said, I, look, I didn't see my family over Christmas because I did not want to run the risk of having an issue. The officials, they're making sacrifices. They're not traveling the way they normally do. But they want to work. All right, let me get to my Power 36 in the AP poll. Um, just want to highlight, I want to direct you to all our March Madness content. You can see it there. I don't need to run through one through 36. I just want to highlight a couple here, and that is Northwestern, I mentioned. They're at number 19, Minnesota 21. I had Northwestern at 16, Minnesota 17, so we're pretty much within the ballpark. Let's see what else we got here. Boise State at 23, BYU at 24. Nowhere to be found in the AP poll. I think they deserve it. Look, I got Boise State, BYU, San Diego State, 23, 24, 25. And then I've got a slew of Big Ten in here. (laughs) <laughs> you know, the Duke thing, I know Duke's probably haters all over me here. There's still a 28 people. They haven't played since that win at Notre Dame. But right now, that's their only good win. So I'm still pausing on Duke right now. 
Their game against Pitt this week is now not happening, postponed. And they got a big game coming up against Florida State on the weekend. Um, those are the ones that really jump out to me that I think are significant. Uh, big climbers, Missouri, Tennessee this week. That's a top 10 game for me. Uh, top 15 game on the AP poll. You know, Virginia, we kept the same area. So, I mean, not a lot of similarities between the my poll and the AP this week. So, not nothing too dramatic. All right, let's move on here. Want to get to my interview with Dan Gavitt, NCAA Senior Vice President. Uh, we're going to go over the first month of the season. Any announcement about the NCAA tournament, that's going to come probably next week. Also, the new net rankings. We'll have a bracket next week. But Dan and I are going to get into where we are, how hard it was to get to this point, and how well everyone's doing to deal with the pandemic. So that's coming up right now. Dan Gavitt, NCAA Senior Vice President of Basketball. And now joining me here on March Madness, March Madness 365, Dan Gavitt, the NCAA Senior Vice President in charge of basketball. And Dan, the first month of the college basketball season is behind us, believe it or not. It's been a crazy month, and there's been obviously a lot of pauses and some cancellations and postponements, but I would argue that overall, the percentages are still great, whether in terms of number of teams that are playing, number of games that have been completed, and actually... The quality of play, which we will get to momentarily, that statistically and data-driven will show that everything's up better than we could have imagined. And we'll get to that momentarily. But first, your overall thoughts of uh, the first month of the season, uh, the fact that we got through the first month as we head into the new year. Andy, it's good to be with you around New Year's. Happy New Year. Very pleased and encouraged overall with the progress that's been made here in the first month of the college basketball season. I think we fully anticipated that we would have disruptions as we have certainly for the health and safety of everyone involved. But the number of games and the quality of the play, as you know, has been very significant uh, and very positive. So encouraged, we could talk about some of the specifics, but I think all things considered in the middle of a pandemic, things are going quite well in college basketball. Yeah, I mean, so let's look back. I mean, the decision to go from November 10th to November 25th we know that it was initially made at the council level, the presidential level, that you know most of the students would be off campus, obviously, from Thanksgiving on. And it did take away two weeks. But what was really interesting was the flexibility of coaches and athletic directors and you know game management, everyone involved, to readjust their schedules before that. And then on the fly as postponements and cancellations occurred. You've been in this business a long time. You know how stubborn coaches can be. What are your thoughts on the ability of a lot of these people to sort of just figure, okay, now I'm playing someone else, but let's go. Well, I think coaches and administrators and and student athletes have exercised an incredible amount of flexibility and nimbleness with all the challenges presented by COVID. They've been very flexible and rescheduling as needed, um, being prepared at the extent they can for games that have been rearranged. And the result has been we've had many games played. I mean, at this point, approximately 75% plus games have been played um, or postponed to be uh, rescheduled at a later date, conference matchups in particular. And that's about what we anticipated. You know, I think I get a little, you know, concerned and bothered by some of the commentary I've read and followed as the season got underway, as if there wasn't a whole lot of thought and planning that went into this. An enormous amount of thought and planning went in 
for weeks and months in the summer and fall as to how to best safely and responsibly have a college basketball season. And delaying the season by two weeks was really fundamental because we, we didn't have all the testing that was in place. We didn't have the protocols that needed to be in place uh, around game management with officials in order to be able to start the season successfully. That was a result also of consideration, as you mentioned, that having less populated campuses after Thanksgiving, more of a controlled environment, was going to give us the best opportunity for success. And this is about what we anticipated. You know, at any given time, there's approximately 10% of teams that are that are on pause. Um, right now, I think it's even less than that. There are about 20 teams that are on pause right now because teams, coaches, administrators, and student athletes have adjusted. They've learned about playing basketball in this new environment. And, and as we've had that experience in travel and having games in a very different kind of atmosphere, it's become more successful in terms of fewer disruptions as we've now gotten into now the, the fifth week of the college basketball season. So I'm encouraged, you know, even though we know that there's a, an awful lot of challenges across our country and our world, this is not a good time in this resurgence across the world. But in the controlled and safe environment of college basketball, things are going quite well, I think, compared to what we anticipated. You know, Dan, the other thing, too, is you can look at it that the system is actually working because, for example, UCLA, Oregon, they don't play because there was a positive test among the officials. That's what you want. You want to, even though, I mean, I wouldn't say we want that to happen, but at the same time, if it's going to happen, we want to know that before the game so that no one else gets exposed. And it's obviously disappointing. It's costly where teams have flown to a site, you know, Michigan State at Virginia or DePaul at Iowa State. And games have had to be canceled or postponed, you know, the Baylor-Gonzaga example. But that also shows that it's working because uh, rather than go through the whole game and then after the fact and say, oh, well, you know, we had a positive, we want to play anyway. I mean, that is not happening because the people that are involved that are decision makers and especially the health and safety people are making the right calls to prevent that from happening. Your thoughts on that it is actually working to prevent any further outbreaks? Without a doubt, you know, we've had the most expert medical advice at every step of the way from all of our uh, universities and conferences, um, incredible resources to make the right medical protocol decisions to play the games and the season safely and responsibly. And to your point, when we have disruptions, it's for very good reasons. Uh, we're testing on a regular basis, minimally three times a week, non-consecutive days. Many schools have gone to daily testing. And so when, unfortunately, there is a positive test or even just a contact with a high-risk positive, then that causes quarantine and that causes a pause in the season for that team. But it's for the health and safety of everybody involved. And it includes the officials, as you know, Andy, all tier one individuals. I think we've learned so much as we've gotten started and, and coaches and administrators and student athletes have learned what the challenges are around this and, and how tough it can be to make this successful. And they've adjusted. I mean, it's amazing the sacrifices that are being made by referees, for example, or anyone that's around the game that has to take precautions very seriously. And because of that, I think we are keeping student athletes, coaches safe and healthy. And we'll see. You know, this is an ever-changing landscape and dynamic. And anyone that knows or thinks they know what's coming really doesn't. We're incredibly respectful of challenges around this. The virus controls us. We don't control the virus. 
but I think we're having some success and we're certainly doing it in a safe and responsible way. And to your point of things evolving, I mean, the contact tracing was a huge issue. And I know you were on a lot of those calls with a lot of these head coaches and it has been reduced from the CDC. Now, not every state and every county has adopted it yet, but how much have you seen that help that at least there's been a reduction from a 14 day to a seven to a 10? It's encouraging. You know, there's a lot of encouraging things uh, that obviously the, the vaccine uh, is encouraging uh, overall for our country and our world and, and certainly for our game as well. But this is a pandemic that we all know from the very beginning is being managed on a local level. The federal government has limited control over what happens. And that plays out also in sports. It certainly plays out in, in college athletics. I know that there's some level of frustration on fans and media that, you know, there, there's not more of a national kind of approach to all of this, but there's not a national approach to it in our country. We know that local authorities, state authorities have the authority in this pandemic, and the same is true in college athletics. We have guidance and recommendations that everyone tries to follow, but it all ultimately gets back to what is permissible within a locality, within a state. And so we'll continue to see that play out over the course of the season. But there are encouraging signs, as you note, with the alternative to quarantine, obviously with a lot of the treatment that we're seeing with COVID-19 and certainly the encouraging signs with the vaccine being rolled out now. So, you know, this drives me crazy of those that push a narrative of what the home office in Indianapolis at the NCAA can control versus conferences. And another great example that if you could just add your opinion to this or your you know commentary is on fans within even the Big East. So I did the Providence DePaul game on Sunday and talking to Providence, you know, they played at Butler last week and it was a little unnerving that there were fans, you know, somewhat close to the court for their liking. They played at TCU. There were fans. Now that's Indiana and Texas. Most of the Big East, there will be no fans. Now maybe there will be obviously at Creighton and Xavier and other parts of the country. We saw fans at the Creighton, Kansas game, at the Villanova, Texas game. So different states, different local counties are allowing it. For whatever reason, people still don't understand that you and the NCAA cannot mandate to tell schools you cannot have fans or you can have fans. Conferences could do that, and we saw that in, the, in football with the Big Ten uh, where they said no fans or only family and friends. So if you could elaborate on what the powers are in terms of something like that, that it is really up to either the schools or the conferences when it comes to fans in the stands. Yeah, you're 100% right, Andy. Uh, you know, the regular season is the authority and auspices of the institutions and conferences. And um, while there's some rules around when the season can start, when it can finish and how many games you know can be played and things like that, most all those decisions are made on a local level um, as they should be. The NCAA staff and committee that runs the basketball championships run the NCAA championship, and we will make decisions and, and policies in regards to fans and, um, and other things around the NCAA championship, March Madness. But all the other decisions are made locally, and, and they should be. And here we are in the holiday time period, and the membership and staff went to great lengths to provide during this holiday time period um, as much flexibility as possible for institutions and conferences to make their own decisions in the best interest of their student athletes around the holidays. Normally there's a mandated three-day winter break that this year was able to happen if coaches and administrators thought that was in the best interest of their teams or not. And if it didn't, then we provide much greater flexibility for uh, 
families possibly to come to campus to visit with their sons or daughters for other things to take place for the health and safety and mental well-being of student athletes during the holidays, depending on local and institutional and state protocols and travel bans and all the things that uh, we're dealing with during this unusual college basketball season. Keeping decisions at a local level so that those that know their situation best and deal with it on a day-to-day and hour-to-hour basis is where we ended up. And I'm I'm pleased that that is where we ended up because no one knows what's in the best interest of their student athletes better than their coaches, administrators, their institutions, and the locale that they operate in. And so also, that gets down to the granular level of the game management. Um, There were mandates or suggestions, whatever word you want to choose, uh, but they're not like legislative orders of spacing on the benches. And I've already seen across the country in person a little bit and obviously in watching some have more space than others. That's just a fact of the of literally the physical space of the arena to spread out the benches. On the masking, um, obviously, some coaches and officials do a better job than others. For whatever reason, some coaches pull it down to yell exactly when you're not supposed to because that's when the spit flies. Uh, and uh, we've seen so many different kinds of face coverings. But yet again, the authority to discipline uh, for lack of, of face covering, for example, is not the jurisdiction of the NCA, but rather if there is any kind of discipline for not adhering to this, it is at the school and conference level. And so yet again, I, I'm just curious your thoughts on how the game management operation has been working. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And you know, I know the NABC and the WBCA, the coaches associations have taken great interest in trying to encourage their members, their coaches, members, you know, to practice safely and to wear their masks and, and be a good example, but also just be, a, a, you know, a, a healthy example of, of how we need to get through this. Um, and you're right, the, the authority for discipline in that area would fall to the either the institution or conference during the regular season. I, I think the game protocols have gone, you know, quite well. You know, we certainly learned an awful lot from the NBA, the WNBA, and what they did so successfully in the summer in the bubbles that they had. We've implemented many of those protocols in our regular season, but you know, we continue to learn and evolve. And, and certainly um, as we heard from the NBA and WNBA, they learned a lot too when they got to Orlando and Bradenton during their bubble experience. And I'm sure they're learning a lot now that their season and the NBA has gotten underway as well. So it, many adjustments along the way as we learn. And again, a great effort and sacrifice by so many to make sure we go to great lengths to make sure that everybody is kept healthy and safe um, and that we have some success along the way um, by playing games that student athletes want to play in. Um, And, you know, here we are. I think it's interesting. I took a lot of time the last few days to look at where we are just one month into the season. Uh, Of course, just before Christmas was one month, four weeks in. And among the top 25 teams, for example, they played an average of seven games um, with a high of nine and a low of five. And I looked down a little bit lower, like between 100 and 125, those teams will be ranked in that area. They played an average of six games with a range of either a max of eight or, or a low of two in a couple of cases. And if you project out that kind of progress, if we can continue to have that kind of success in getting basically a couple of games uh, per week played, even with the pauses and disruptions we have, we're going to finish the season in somewhere between 20 and 25 games per team on average. 
before conference tournament play and before the NCAA tournament, that's a representative season. That is indeed a season that if you had asked me back in August and September what my hope would be for the season, it would absolutely have been in that range of the low 20s. Do I hope that we'll get to a little more than that for the student-athletes involved? Sure. Um, will there be some that will be less than that? Absolutely. We have a minimum of this year of 13 games against Division One competition, and some will just get to that uh, minimum number of 13, but some by choice. You know, we have some leagues that are just playing only conference games and now just starting here in the month of January, which is absolutely fine. All of the leading to conference tournaments, hopefully, and then certainly an NCAA tournament and those teams being able to qualify to play in the tournament. Yeah, so to your point, I'm playing the long game here, like you, I think. And I bring up this DePaul-Providence game that I did because I had great conversations with both head coaches and they've had different experiences. When Dave Lato's DePaul team, unbelievable pauses that they've had to go through since they were back on campus, one 14-day, two 7-days. So that's a total of 28 days. Every player, every staff member in some form or fashion has had to isolate. And I asked him, you know, how often did you think any of these guys said, you know what, we're done, we're throwing in the towel? He says, there were a couple of times he thought maybe, especially after they went to Iowa State and had to come back. But he says, my guys want to play. They want to play. And we saw that in the double overtime game that happened on Sunday at Providence. They lost great effort from that team. But I also asked him, OK, if in March I come to you and you get all your Big East games in, they played one non-conference game against Western Illinois, and you end up playing 21 games before the Big East tournament, will that be considered a success? He said, absolutely. And that's why you have to think long. We can't just think, oh, they've only played two games and it's the end of December. Let's wait and see what happens when we get to March. Uh, for all these teams, especially these ones that have had these pauses, uh, you know, whether it's in the Big East, SEC, or the Big 12, and you name it. And, and that's where we have to judge long-term. And I do believe, and I'm, I, I think you're on the same page with me, that because we have more time than football, we have all of January, all of February, and a little bit of March, and that there have been these windows that have been put in by these leagues smartly for little sort of replacement times, that they will make up the conference games. I really believe that, that unless we have some massive pauses in January and February with a lot of these teams, I think we're going to get the conference games in. And if when we get to March 14th, if everyone's played a full conference schedule, that's a remarkable achievement. Your thoughts? Yeah, it'd be incredible achievement. I do agree with you. I think that the chance of those games being made up that have been postponed is greater in the conference season. We have many conferences that are playing back-to-back -back games. Um, so going to one location and rather than playing home and home, uh, they're playing two games on back-to-back -back or every other day. And I think that's a model that can be used for makeup games as well. So I think that there's a very good chance that there will be, um, you know, um, even more success in having games played successfully during a conference season. You know, I think, look, the alternative here is we don't have a season or we have very much a reduced season than we're on the track to have right now. And, you know, everybody jumps to the NCAA tournament as the ultimate goal, of course. Um, it's, it's one of the great sporting events in the world. Every college basketball team and player and coach want to play in March Madness. But the reality is, Andy, as we know, 80% of teams on men's and women's basketball aren't going to play in the NCAA tournament. That's the same every year. It's an exclusive event to qualify for. It's either an automatic qualifier or an at-large team. So much of what we're experiencing right now 
is for those student athletes who are not going to play in March Madness. They deserve an opportunity to have a season. They don't get the season back. It doesn't come back magically. The good news is that the NCAA membership has made a decision that these student athletes will have an extra year of eligibility if they want to exercise that because of the challenges around the pandemic. Even if we have a season of any length, it's going to be a different season as we know. And so it's great that uh, basketball student athletes, as well as those in the fall, are going to be able to have an extra year of eligibility if they want to exercise it. But there's no reason we shouldn't be playing college basketball if we can do it safely and responsibly. You know, we had about 100 teams that played a college volleyball season this fall. We have about 50 teams that are playing college hockey right now. You know, basketball student athletes deserve the same opportunity as those other student athletes that have had that chance to do so, if it can be done safely and responsibly. And fortunately, we've been able to do it safely and responsibly to this point, and we hope that it will continue. So non-conference, the uh, suggestion was try to play four, a minimum. As we said, some, you know, exceeded that. BYU played its full allotment. Some schools are actually holding one sort of as a potential makeup if they can, uh, you know, sort of have it in the bank. But when we get to the selection process, how do you think the committee will judge the unbalanced non-conference, you know, on one side, you could argue, hey, if a team played all these great games, won them, you know, UCF wins at Florida State, great. You know, they shouldn't be penalized like they should be rewarded. And if someone didn't get a chance to play that, you're not going to penalize them. But at the same time, they don't get that bump that the other school did. Well, like always, the committee will look at the full body of work, right? It'll be the entirety of the season, both conference and non-conference games. And Fortunately, and hopefully, we'll have a pretty uh, full and complete conference season to evaluate teams in. Those teams are the best are going to, you know, end up finishing high in their own conference, and, and they'll uh, be considered as such uh, very worthy candidates for at-large selection and, and seeding also. And to your point, those that had those that success in non-conference games um, should have uh, the benefit of that considered in their evaluation. But also we have to consider those that lost those opportunities and, and you know, through no fault of their own because of the pandemic, uh, games that were canceled or re, uh, postponed and not able to be rescheduled. So we'll have to, you know, be very thorough in the analysis. Uh, the committee knows that they'll be very well prepared to do that. You know, we do believe still or we're going to release the net ranking for the first time on January 4th. We do believe still that there's been enough non-conference play and enough cross-pollination of games that the analytics will still have merit and be good tools to use for the committee. Not just the net ranking, but Ken Palm's ranking and KPI and Sagarin and some of ESPN's rankings as well. So uh, we'll see as we get into January uh, how effective those rankings and analytics are for the committees to use. But we are encouraged that we think that there is enough that they will be beneficial for the committees in their evaluation as well. But at the end of the day, it's also going to be an awful lot of observation and taking into consideration all the different factors of, of player availability, team availability, and, and monitoring across the entire landscape of the season from November 25th until the last game of conference tournaments played. All right, so Dan, just before we end, uh, we got to get to the court because the play, I think, has been, I mean, it's exceeded expectations. Uh, we didn't know, no one had a normal offseason, normal summer. You had really the whole spring where Players maybe weren't even conditioning at all. And yet, I could rattle off a bunch of these. Gonzaga, they're having a historic season. Mark Fuse put together a schedule on the fly. Iowa, Virginia, Kansas, uh, West Virginia. 
and Corey Kispert, Drew Timmy, Jalen Suggs, Joel Ayayi. I mean, they're having epic seasons, and they are putting together a season where it'll be remembered for quite some time at Gonzaga, and they go in potentially, you know, as the favorite. Uh, so that's a great story. Luca Garza comes back. I mean, he's basically putting up 30 all the time, and he's obviously the front runner for National Player of the Year. Northwestern sits atop the Big Ten at 3-0. and You know, experienced teams like Wisconsin, Villanova and Creighton in the Big East, Xavier, which wasn't expected to be as good as they are. They've popped up. Missouri, you know, another older team, is looking like one of the best teams in the SEC. And in the Big 12, you know, they're as deep as they've been consistently. Um, the ACC, we're still trying to figure out what will happen with, you know, how good Duke will be in Carolina, obviously Virginia, Florida State, and others. Uh, and then in the A-10, we've got St. Louis and Richmond and Dayton. You know, they've exceeded expectations. Drake loses its best player to Minnesota, Liam Robbins, and now they're 10-0 and atop the Valley. So there's been so many great stories that have happened, and yet, and you, I know you have data to back this up, the quality of play has been exceptional. Surprisingly good and encouraging, as you note, because of the disruption in the spring and summer and the usual kind of preseason we had, no exhibition games, um, and then starting the season two weeks later, the quality of play has been really good, and the storylines have been outstanding, as you mentioned, Andy. Um, in all the kind of statistical categories we track, the trends over a year-to-year basis, all of them are up this year significantly. Points per game, possessions per game, points per possession, which is an indicator of offensive efficiency, field goal percentage up significantly, and three-point field goal percentage up pretty significantly as well now in the second year with the deeper three-point line. So the quality of play, I think, has absolutely been better than anticipated and really exciting for the months that will follow now that teams have had, you know, anywhere from a handful to as many as 10 games under their belt as they start into conference play. I think we're looking at a very exciting January and February, God willing, and um, it's going to be a really exciting uh, March Madness this year as well. And lastly, Dan, the thing that everyone loves about this sport are the last possession shots, and we've already had a slew of them. I mean, we've already had highlights for the season this season, and while, yes, it's you know, it's it's upsetting and, you know, that there aren't fans to really bring the whole euphoria to it. But what I've seen, and I've used this word, and it's a basic word, it's three letters, is joy. And I've seen it so much from these players when there's been that last second shot, the tip in, the three-pointer, the buzzer beater in any form, the pile up by the players, the locker room celebrations, because, you know, the players, the coaches, the officials that have had to sacrifice a lot of their own personal and social time and dealing with quarantine and isolation. And when they have that moment, it's this release. And we didn't know what to expect. And yet, one month in, we've seen it quite a bit, which really, I think, encapsulates what the sport is all about. Yeah, without a doubt. You know, we're all craving normalcy, right, in this pandemic. And what we used to enjoy so much and appreciate and probably treasure even a little bit more now, knowing that it can be taken away or modified in some way. So when those moments do happen, I think the joy is genuine. It's real. And um, to see student athletes bond together as teams and in ways they never anticipated, never imagined, um, you know, they really are in very tight units now because they have to be. And I think they're enjoying that experience to the extent they can. And without it, they'd be even more isolated, as we all are in some ways, in order to stay safe and healthy. And it's really encouraging to see 
at least for those 40 minutes, student athletes be able to experience something that they love and that is a level of normal that they don't get in the other, you know, 23 hours, 22 hours of the day. So, yeah, we'll hope that it will continue. Um, we're encouraged that it is going to and, um, and appreciate your coverage of this as always, Andy, and wish you and your family the happiest of New Year's. Same to you, Dan. And I will just a little tease that sometime sooner than later, We'll have more announcements as to what will happen with March Madness, a little bit more specifics. I didn't want people to think you're on and and we weren't going to cover it. We're just not there yet. And so sooner than later, we'll have more announcements and details of what March Madness will look like in this unprecedented year. Very soon. Yeah, we anticipate actually having some kind of announcement in the first week of the year and looking forward to sharing more details around March Madness very soon. And as you said at the beginning there, next week, We uh, anticipate the first net ranking. Give us a sense of where everyone is at at this juncture as we head into January. Dan, appreciate it. Stay safe, and we'll talk soon. You too, Andy. Be well. Andy Katz, that guy will rank his wife's dinners. He'll rank anything. It's time for Katz Ranks here at March Madness, March Madness 365. And for this week's edition, as we get ready for the new year, I'm going to rank the top 10 conferences. But here's the deal. The way I'm doing this, I'm putting heavy emphasis on the top of each conference. And with that, I mean that you'll see here, uh, there are a couple of teams, notably one team, that carry the weight of their conference. So let's start at number 10, the Missouri Valley. So Drake started the season 10-0. They are clearly one of the better teams out of a potential one-bid league. And Loyola Chicago has played pretty well as well at times. So the top of the Valley... And I wouldn't dismiss yet Bradley as another team. Southern Illinois won at Butler. They will be in contention for the Valley title. Um, Northern Iowa without A.J. Green, obviously, is sliding back. But the Valley at the top certainly uh, deserves to be in the top 10. At number nine, and this is tough in eight and nine, the Mountain West. And the reason is that San Diego State and Boise State are two of the better teams out West. Now, yes, the bottom of the Mountain West drags it down, but the top, those two teams are legitimate top 25 teams and teams that could win a game or two in the NCAA tournament. The same is true in the Atlantic 10. The reason I give it a slight nudge ahead of the Mountain West is I believe St. Louis, Richmond, and Dayton all are legitimate, not just NCAA tournament teams, but teams that could win a game in the NCAA tournament, at least. So I go three deep in the A-10. I go two deep in the Mountain West. Let's go to number seven, the Pac-12. So the Pac-12 has struggled. Oregon and UCLA appear to be the two best teams. I wouldn't dismiss yet Colorado and USC as two I think that could be pushing up there. I had Arizona State early in the season, but they've really struggled. They need to definitely show more going forward. So... The depth of the Pac-12 is better than the WCC, barely, but the top of the WCC, obviously Gonzaga is the number one team in the country, and they are the best team in the country by far at this point. I know they haven't played Baylor yet. But in second place, BYU beat Utah. You know, their one loss uh, of note was to USC, and then they also lost to Boise State. They won at San Diego State, so that pushes them above the Mountain West. The Pac-12 with the win over Utah was significant. I know they did lose to USC, so you could say they split with the Pac-12, but 
I just think the strength of those two, and USF, San Francisco, beat Virginia. Gonzaga beat Virginia. So that's another feather for the WCC. So that's why I put the WCC six. The SEC, top heavy again. Tennessee and Missouri. Arkansas, we gotta wait and see who they play or how they play against elite teams. But that's why the SEC is up top because Tennessee is clearly a Final Four contender. Missouri, a team that's played exceptionally well to this point. The ACC, put them at four, but they have not played as well yet. And this, I'm, I'm kind of hedging a little and going a little depth here because Virginia, North Carolina, Florida State, Duke, Clemson, NC State, Virginia Tech are all looking like tournament teams. And Louisville. So they've got a lot of depth there. Let's wait and see on Syracuse. Who knows, maybe even Pitt, you know, which had their moments with the win over Northwestern, which is looking better. So I think the depth of the ACC keeps it in the top four. Number three, now we're going top heavy again. Big East, Villanova and Creighton, two Final Four contenders. Behind them, Xavier's played great. Right now, you could argue that Providence, Seton Hall, and Marquette are all right there to get into the NCAA tournament. At number two, the Big 12. Love the depth of this league. Kansas and Baylor. They're title contenders. West Virginia, Texas Tech, and Texas. That's the top five right now where you could say any of those five could be in the Sweet 16. Go a little further down. Oklahoma State, Oklahoma, TCU, all could be playing into the second round or beyond. So the depth of the Big 12 certainly puts them two. But number one, it's got to be the Big 10. Because right now the Big 10, if the selection were happening this week, the Big Ten would probably get 11 schools in the NCAA tournament. The only schools I wouldn't put in right now are Penn State, Maryland, and Nebraska. 11 would get in right now. And they've got multiple Final Four contenders led by Wisconsin, Illinois, then probably Iowa. I wouldn't dismiss Michigan going on a run, Rutgers. Obviously, Northwestern's playing great. They're 3-0 as I start the week here. Uh, and Michigan State, they'll get it going. So the depth is phenomenal in the Big Ten. So a lot of debate here, I'm sure, as to where I had them. I hope people listen here to the rationalization of why I have them ranked in this order. So at this juncture, that's the way I see it. Cats ranks, top 10 conferences, one to 10, here on March Madness, March Madness 365. And now joining me here on March Madness, March Madness 365, Mark Smith from the University of Missouri. Look, I've been on the Mizzou bandwagon for quite some time. The rest of the country is going to have to get on it. Monster game this week in the SEC, the two best teams in the SEC meeting, Missouri and Tennessee. Mark, how prepared are the Mizzou Tigers for this matchup to show the rest of the country and the league that you guys can win the SEC? I think we're uh, really prepared. You know, we had a, a nice, hard couple of days of practice, and, you know, I just think we're ready to get back out on the court Wednesday and, you know, play against a really good Tennessee team, and it'll be a great opportunity for us. The Illinois game, I think, was a great indicator of how far this program has come in the last two years and a sign that you guys are ready for the big stage. You know, I've used this adage before, Mike Bray from Notre Dame, he's the one that I know that said it, which is get old and stay old, which I think really applies to Mizzou. From your vantage point, why do you think that has been such a plus for this group this particular season in this unprecedented season that you guys have this experience and can deal with all the chaos that's going on? I just think over the past two years, you know, this team's been so uh, through so much with each other and 
definitely, we, you know, we had a lot of experience, you know, games last year we played where we thought we should have won together as a unit. I just think this year we came in with the mindset that we're not going to let that happen. You know, we have a lot of seniors on this team, and, you know, we're just chipping away one game at a time. And I think everybody's uh, staying together. And everyone wants to win. So it's a it's great to be a part of right now. It's really fun. All right. So you beat Tennessee if what happens? I just think, you know, we stick to our DNA and that's playing defense. Uh, you know, they're good around the paint. So we're going to have to, their bigs and their guards are good. So we're just going to have to stick to what we do, what our DNA is, and that's defense. So I mentioned Illinois. There was also the Oregon game. And then there was the nail-biter against Bradley. Which game along the way told you that there's something different about this group? I think it was the Bradley game. You know, we was down 10 or something like that. And we just kept pushing the last three minutes, just kept chipping away one possession at a time. We came back and won that game. I think that's really what's, you know, solidified. You know, they went on a 9-0 run towards the end of the game, and then we just kind of picked up, you know, just kept chipping away one possession at a time and came back and got a, a gut win, just grinded it out. So you, Drew, Pinson, Tillman, what is it about this core group that has allowed this team to be so successful? I just think, you know, we got a great connection and guys are just, we're just used to playing with each other now. We know each other's strengths and we know our role and we just try to follow that to a T and, you know, just be there for the other guy and pick each other up. What's it like to sort of fly under the radar, as I was saying at the top? I mean, we don't really pay attention that much to it. We just, just keep chipping away each game at a time, just looking to, you know, gain respect. But you have to agree with me. When people think SEC, they think Kentucky, you know, maybe Tennessee. They don't think Missouri. I think things can change this season and think Missouri when they think about the SEC. What about you? Yeah, I definitely think things are going to change. You know, Coach Martin building a great program here, so. How would you describe his style, by the way? He's so, what we see on the outside, very even, very measured. Not too high, not too low. How would you describe it? I just I'm just wanting the best for you and pushing you to be the best player you can. You know, he's going to push you and coach you hard. So just because he wants you to reap the benefits. So he's going to coach you and try to make you the best player possible. So I love Coach Martin. You know, he's really helped my game a lot just by coaching me and teaching me the game. So I feel like when you, when you get in here and see him in practice, he's really pushing guys and try to take them to another level. Last thing, Mark, I was going to say is that, um, look, every player and every coach has their own decision to make. This is an unprecedented year for all of us. You can opt in, you can opt out, and no one should judge you either way. But why do you think you and this team have stuck together and wanted to persevere through all the sacrifices that everyone's having to make? I just think because we feel like we have something special here and everyone in the locker room is on the same page. So I just think, you know, we follow the guidelines and do it the best we can to, you know, prevent COVID and get in that virus. So I just think we're... We see something special in this group, and, you know, everybody's on the same page, so we're ready to play games, and that's really all we care about. Appreciate it, Mark. Stay safe. Have a great game against Tennessee. And now it's time for March Chadness here on March Madness 365. Chad Acock from Turner Sports joins me. All right, Chad, how did I do last week? Am I still on an upward trajectory? Yeah, you're still on a good trajectory. You started really hot. The last couple of weeks have been about 500. So, you know, not bad, but you're just kind of maintaining your status from a week ago. Lighter schedule last week, so smaller sample size. You know, there are only six games that you picked, but you got the Kansas game right over West Virginia. Creighton beat Xavier at home, and then Gonzaga took down UVA. That neutral side just smoked them. So, yeah, not, not bad. This week, we're going to crank it up, though. We got 10 games we're going to let you pick. And I want to start with Tuesday night. You've got Number 19, Northwestern, at number 10, Iowa. 
ranked for just the fifth time since 1970. Northwestern's, you know, looking to build on a 3-0 and start to Big Ten play. How do you like their chances at getting a road win at Iowa? Timing's not great for Northwestern. I hope this doesn't necessarily mean if they have a good showing that they would bounce immediately out of the poll. But look, they've been playing with fire. They have won. That's the difference. That's the change in the narrative. Uh, where they came back and beat Ohio State. They beat Indiana, obviously, late. So these are things that wouldn't happen a year ago, two years ago. But Iowa is a different team at home. We've seen that with Iowa. Uh, They lost in overtime to Minnesota last Sunday, lost on the road to the number one team in the country in Gonzaga. So I I feel fairly certain that Iowa, which at home, beat back North Carolina. I think they handle Northwestern at home. If there's an area that's a vulnerable spot for the Wildcats, it's up front, and that's a problem because Luca Garza is going to get his. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah, I think you're right. I hope they don't get bounced just from maybe this one loss to Iowa, but we will revisit Northwestern in a few minutes when we talk about their game on Sunday as well. But let's let's keep moving along. Wednesday, December 30th, you've got number seven, Tennessee, at number 12, Missouri. Big battle in the SEC here. Both teams, 6-0, and looking to start off SEC play with a bang. Do you like Tennessee on the road or do you like Missouri at home? I'll tell you, I like Missouri at home. Both teams are old, experienced, but uh, I'm going to go with the Tigers, and the rest of the country is going to notice Missouri after this game, and they will be looked at as one of the favorites, if not the favorite, believe it or not, to potentially win the SEC. All right. The last time we saw Missouri, they struggled with Bradley, needing that last second and one to get the win. Are you not worried about that at all? You think maybe they were just looking ahead to Tennessee, or what you think there? Yeah, I mean, look, Bradley's been a consistently good program in the last couple of years. Yeah. That game's around Christmas. Those are always danger games, whether you're going home, you're not going home. I don't put as much stock in those games that are around the holidays. All right. Well, I think, yeah, this will definitely be a prove-it game for Missouri. But Tennessee's been rolling, too, so that'll be a good one. December 31st, New Year's Eve. You've got a 4.30 Eastern game with number 21, Minnesota, at number 6, Wisconsin. Uh, The Big Ten seems to love these big games on big days. And, uh, you know, Minnesota, they got that big win over Iowa. And now they really started a stretch there with seven straight games of ranked opponents. And if you want to back it up a couple more games, I think it's eight out of nine games that were against ranked opponents. Big 10 is just top to bottom loaded and the schedule is not doing Minnesota any favors here. But one problem with that is you don't know which Minnesota team you'll get. On one hand, they dropped 102 points on Iowa, but (laughs) a couple games before that, they lost by 27 at Illinois. So which team do you think will get at Wisconsin? Well, Illinois is a bad matchup for them because of Kofi Coburn who went off in that game. So they've got better size. They don't have the strength, but Liam Robbins, I think, can, you know, he can guard Nate Reavers. So that's a better sort of size comparison. But I like Wisconsin at home. But they're going to have a hard time dealing with Marcus Carr. No question about it. That's a tall order for Demetri Trice, who had a great game in his own right against Michigan State, you know, with 29 in that game. Wisconsin was our team of the week. So I think this could be a late possession game. I think Minnesota will have a much better showing on the road in Madison than they did in Champaign. But I like Wisconsin to continue the streak. Yeah, I like Wisconsin to win, too. You mentioned your team of the week. They're they're hot at the right time. Saturday, January 2nd, you've got number eight, Texas, at number three, Kansas. Kansas coming off back-to-back ranked wins in the Big 12. That road win against Texas Tech and then West Virginia at home. You think they keep rolling against another top 10 opponent here in the Texas Longhorns? Fog Allen with or without fans or limited fans is still Fog Allen. And Kansas is still pretty good. As much as I'm on the Texas bandwagon, Greg Brown's playing better and better. I'm going to lean toward Kansas in yet another late possession game. I know West Virginia wasn't, but they certainly had one of those against Creighton. I think that 
to dismiss the Jayhawks as a Big 12 title contender is way premature. I think everyone, including myself, is sort of handed it to Baylor. Be very intrigued to see how Baylor handles Kansas, certainly when they're in Allen Fieldhouse. I'm going with the Jayhawks to knock off Texas. Yeah, that'll be a great game to kick off 2021. Also Saturday, number 12, Missouri at Arkansas. So we, we just talked about Missouri, but now we're looking at an Arkansas team that's undefeated. They're off to an 8-0 start. How do you feel about Missouri? You think they'll split the week? You think they get a win here at Arkansas? What do you like to happen here? I think they split the week, but they certainly could beat Arkansas because they're a more experienced team. But Arkansas has played an incredibly soft schedule, and we just have no idea how good they are. So uh, I'm going to put the onus on the Razorbacks. Show up, prove it, get this game at home. You should win it at Bud Walton. Let's see it. Riding with the must bus. I like it. Now we've got number 10, Iowa, at number 14, Rutgers. Rutgers had their first loss at Ohio State last week. You think they'll bounce back here at home against Iowa, or you think Iowa gets a road win? You know, look, this puts a lot of onus on making sure that Miles Johnson is good to go, and uh, I'm not quite sure about Cliff Omri. I know he was was hurt, Um, so they could have issues defending Garza. But Ron Harper Jr., he's going to be a bit of a matchup problem. I mean, Joe Wieskamp's going to really have to guard him. Uh, Do they put someone quicker on him? We'll see. But, you know, this is going to be life in the Big Ten. So Iowa, you know, has to play an undefeated Northwestern at home and then go to the rack, which has been one of the toughest places with or without fans over the last couple of years. So I think Rutgers protects the home court and knocks off Iowa. What a wild year. We're in the Big Ten. Iowa's biggest week is against a ranked Northwestern and a ranked Rutgers. I know. <laughs> Doesn't happen too often. How about another game Saturday? Number 24, Virginia Tech at number 23, Virginia. And I'm not going to lie, I have no clue how to evaluate either one of these teams. And you throw in the in-state rivalry factor, who knows what's going to happen. Virginia Tech, they look strong against Villanova and Clemson, but then they kind of fell asleep at the wheel and lost by 20 to an average Penn State team. And then Virginia, they just got smoked by Gonzaga. Hard to judge them against that. You know, Gonzaga, best team in the country, we think. But they don't have a signature win. So who do you like to win this rivalry game? I'm going to go with Virginia. I have a hard time seeing back-to-back weekends of of no-shows by the Cavaliers. They're going to have to make shots. They are the more experienced team. But I like them in this scenario to beat their rival Virginia Tech and reassert themselves as a team that could compete at the top of the ACC. All right, so UVA at home. And then Saturday night, number 20, Duke at number 18, Florida State. Duke took that mini break, but they're back in action here. This game could help decide the ACC later on down the line. Who do you like to win? I like Florida State. Duke's game against Pitt was postponed for this week. So Duke's going to have a pretty lengthy break between that Notre Dame win on the road to this game against Florida State. So I'm going with the Seminoles. Uh, You know, I, I feel confident that their home loss to UCF was a little bit of an anomaly for them. I think they'll bounce back. Yeah, Duke surprised us with a win at Notre Dame, but I don't think they'll win at Florida State either. So I like your pick. Uh, Let's close it out with two games on Sunday. The first one, Northwestern, that we just hinted at. Number 19, Northwestern, at number 16, Michigan. Zero favors from the Big Ten in scheduling as Northwestern. First week ranked, they have to face two ranked opponents on the road. No fun there. Meanwhile, Michigan, they're undefeated heading into the week. Who do you like to win? Ooh, this is a tough call. But you know what? Um, I kind of feel like Northwestern's going to get the split. I could see them going into Michigan and winning this game. They actually have more experience Then the Wolverines, I think they will bounce back. And, you know, the issue for Michigan will be how they defend Boo Booey, who's been playing sensational right now for Northwestern, hitting big shots at a huge three to help beat Ohio State. And I think he'll be a matchup problem for them. I'm going to go with Northwestern 
to get a road split this week. And if they do that, they definitely will stay in the poll. Wow. Yeah, no doubt they will stay in the poll if they get that win. And it feels odd that Northwestern, it just seems like they're an underdog story despite them being ranked number 19. Yeah, I I don't see them getting a road win this week. But, hey, I hope you're right. That'd be fun to see. Last game of the week, number 25, Ohio State at number 21, Minnesota. Ohio State, we mentioned they took down Rutgers. They also had that one-point loss to Northwestern. You think we're looking at another uh, road loss in the Big Ten here? Or you like Minnesota to win? What do you think will happen? I'm going to go with the Gophers at home. You know, Marcus Carr and really Brandon Johnson the other night, obviously against Iowa, he had 26. But Marcus Carr is playing like a first-team All-American, not just first-team All-Big Ten. And I just don't think Ohio State has a playmaking guard who can keep him either away from the basket or off the three-point line. So I'm going with Marcus Carr in Minnesota to win at home. All right, so Minnesota gets to win at home. Well, that'll close it out. That'll be our first look into 2021. Ten games. I'm excited to see how you do next week, Andy. I hope I do well. I think we're trending in the right direction. But bottom line, Chad, is we've had some sensational games, great endings, and unbelievable performances. And Gonzaga, by the way, is having a historic season. No question. Yeah. Hard to ask for much more. Appreciate it, Chad. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. And that'll wrap up this edition of March Madness 365. As always, big shout out to our Turner Sports crew, Chad Acock, Abby Stoltz, Michael Kaplan, Sean Bartley, and the entire NCAA.com team. Love what they do in terms of repurposing this podcast and everything on our site. It keeps getting better and better. We hope you check it out on NCAA.com. Happy New Year, everyone. Stay safe. More announcements coming next week on all your NCAA and March Madness social media platforms. We're going to find out more about the tournament, location, venues, dates, new net rankings, bracket next week. A lot of content coming in the next week on our March Madness and NCAA social media platforms. Take care, everyone.